Matthew chapter 16, we're on page 983. Please have it open before you and, and see how the Word of God speaks today. We've just sung a hymn there and one of the lines in it talked about the Holy Spirit being the one who makes God's Word come alive in us. So let's pray. Father God, we confess that there have been times when we have uh, come to your word and it it hasn't lived for us. Uh, We've struggled to to grasp it or we've simply not been very interested. Lord, we pray that your spirit would be here just now and would make your word come alive in us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We gather here Sunday by Sunday to worship God and to learn more about what it is to follow his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is very much at the center of everything that that we do here at Kirkpatrick Memorial. This morning I want to, to put to you three absolutely central questions about Jesus Christ. And they're very simple questions, really. They're ones that go right to the heart of understanding Jesus. Who is Jesus? Why did he come into this world? And what difference does it make to me? Those aren't questions that I randomly thought of this week or uh, questions that have come out of the blue. They're questions, all of which are dealt with in our text here this morning. First question comes straight away in the opening verses of our passage. Jesus has taken his disciples about 25 miles north from Galilee, the region where he had been doing most of his preaching and his healing, probably to get away from the crowds, the busyness, the the hectic nature of that life. He's taken them 25 miles north to a place called Caesarea Philippi. It's a a beautiful region in the foothills of Mount Hermon, uh, which is a a very, very high snow-capped peak, almost stands alone in that whole uh, part of the world as as a beautiful, uh, lush, green uh, area among all the the barren land around it. So he's taken these guys on a, a restful retreat, but then he takes initiative in a conversation. Look at verse 13. He asks him the million dollar question. Who do people say the son of man is? Now just as I'm not introducing these questions out of the blue. Neither was Jesus on this occasion throwing this question in out of the blue. This question has been on their minds ever since the rabbi first approached them and said come and follow me. Who is this guy? The disciples had started to think about this when they first heard him preach because they realized they'd never ever heard preaching like it. Then they saw him heal all sorts of people. He healed them whether he was standing beside them or whether they were a long way off. And that added to their sense of wonder. Who is he? One day he healed a paralyzed man, but on top of just healing him, he he claimed to be able to forgive his sins. They had seen him raise people from the dead. These guys had been in the boat with Jesus 
the day the storm whipped up in Galilee. And he stood up and spoke to the weather and it changed. These guys, for, for months, maybe years at this stage, had already been asking themselves the million dollar question, who is this man? And today Jesus articulates it and puts it out in the open. Who do people say that I am? <clears throat> the disciples knew what people were saying about Jesus because they, they heard uh, what other people were saying about him. The general consensus seems to be that Jesus was a really brilliant teacher and an important religious figure in Judaism. They started to compare Jesus with some of the prophets. Some thought that he was John the Baptist raised from the dead. And, and there's, you know, John preached about repentance. He wanted people to turn from the way they were living and come to God. And Jesus did that. So there was a sense of similarity. Others said that he was a, more like Elijah. He was an Old Testament prophet with a role of preparing for a, a Messiah, a promised rescuer to come. Some looked at Jesus and they thought he, he looked a lot like a modern day Jeremiah. Jeremiah had preached a lot of, about judgment on God's people and on the temple. And there'd been a bit of that in Jesus' ministry. So whenever you look at how the, the people understood Jesus, they recognized that he was an important figure. There weren't many people around saying, Jesus, he's a nobody, he doesn't matter. He's trivial. No, they were saying something quite different. They were saying Jesus is really quite a big deal. In fact, he stands shoulder to shoulder with some of the greats. With John the Baptist, with Elijah, with Jeremiah. In verse 16, Peter gives his answer to the question. Now, I want you to understand something about Peter and his role in this passage. Peter is the most outspoken of the disciples and he sort of ends up being their, their default spokesman so whenever he speaks it, it's not a bad assumption a lot of the time to understand that he's speaking for all of them he's speaking for the disciples so notice what he says he says to Jesus you are the Christ the son of the living God that's all very uh, you know, we, we've known Jesus as the Christ all along, so it's hard for us to get our heads around this. But even then, I'm not sure that we entirely understand it. Remember what the Christ means. It's not a surname. Jesus was not Christ in the way that I am Ebbinghaus. Christ is a, is a title. It's the same title as the Jewish word Messiah. So Jesus is the Messiah. The Messiah is the promised king. Jesus' disciples had come to believe that, that Jesus was the person that Israel, God's people, had been waiting for. Not just for a few months or years, but for centuries. Way back hundreds of years earlier, God had promised one of the kings, King David, that one of his descendants would one day come along and be a wonderful king for his people. The disciples said, Jesus you're it. You're the Messiah. So it's a, it's a massive thing that the fellows are saying here. 
And what's more, Peter says that Jesus the Christ is no mere mortal. He says he's the son of the living God. I suppose if you take a step back and compare Peter's answer with the answer that was coming from the population at large, the one distinctive that I I would see most clearly, the people at large think that Jesus is an important figure. That he fits into a line of important figures. That he stands shoulder to shoulder with other important guys. He's definitely an important player. He's one of the crowd of important prophets. Peter says something totally different. He says, no, Peter's not one of the crowd. Peter is the one. The only one. The chosen one. The Messiah. The one we're waiting for. There's an important shift from verse 14 to 15 that I want you to pay attention to for a moment. In verse 13, Jesus had asked, who do people say that I am? But in verse 15, he says, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And that's the important question actually for us here today. The the question that each one of us needs to have an answer to. You see, it's all very interesting to spend your life dealing with other people's notions of Jesus Christ. You can read theological textbooks on the subject. You you can Google uh, the the matter and, and blog it to your heart's content. But at the end of the day, talking about Jesus in the abstract, Jesus in theory, doesn't help you to answer the important personal question That Jesus asks here. This morning as we gather around God's word. We're being asked the same question. That Jesus asked his disciples in Caesarea Philippi. What about you? Who do you say that I am? I wonder do you have an answer for him? Maybe you haven't given the the subject much thought. Isn't it time that you did? Maybe you're like the majority of people in Jesus' day and you see Jesus like simply another religious figure, a good man, somebody who taught and and healed a bit. Or maybe by the grace of God you're beginning to see it like Peter and the disciples did. You've realized that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Friends, that's our first and our crucial first question. Who is Jesus? We've got to have an answer to that question. Everything in Matthew's gospel so far has been building up to this moment. This moment when Jesus asks this question and when Peter confesses him. Ever since chapter 4... Matthew's been telling us story after story and incident after incident about Jesus' brilliant teaching and his wonderful healing ministry. And we saw in our passage last week that we're supposed to be paying attention to all of this. We're supposed to be weighing it up. We're supposed to be looking at the signs before us and coming to a conclusion. That's what Jesus called the religious leaders to in the passage we looked at last week. And today... The call is is coming to all of us. 
We're supposed to recognize Jesus as the Messiah. God's chosen King. Now that Jesus' identity is established, from here on in, the whole focus of Matthew's Gospel is going to change. Because the rest of Matthew's Gospel is going to deal with a second question. No longer who is he? We know now who he is. The second question is why did he come? If we had been there that day in Caesarea Philippi and we had been among the disciples, this would have been really easy for us. An absolute no-brainer. As soon as we recognize that Jesus is the Messiah, then the next question, why did he come? That's easy. If he's the Messiah, if he's God's chosen king, then he's come to rescue Israel from their enemies and to reestablish us as a nation of peace and prosperity. We're going back to the glory days. It's going to be like it was under King David and under Solomon. It's going to be even better than that because the Messiah has come. So in, in this particular context in first century Palestine, the Messiah had a very, a totally concrete expectation. He was going to come. He was going to kick out the Romans, clear the street of the occupying Roman forces, get rid of Roman taxes and bring us liberty. That's what the Messiah was going to do. In verse 20, we get the first hint that this might not be Jesus' plan. Don't tell anyone that I'm the Christ, he says. He doesn't want his disciples to rush off and start telling people that they have found the Messiah. He doesn't want to be associated with that kind of political expectation. That's not Primarily why he came. Jesus goes on to tell his disciples why he did come. Look at verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the Thursday raised. This is quite staggering stuff. Nothing, nothing could have prepared these fellows for what Jesus was saying to them here. The very first time that it becomes clear in Matthew's gospel who Jesus is, this is the first time that he's, he's named as the Christ. Except by Matthew in verse chapter 1, verse 1, where he introduces us to his whole book. This is the first time that a group of people anywhere knows that Jesus is the Christ. And as soon as he's identified as the Christ, he says, but I'm not what you think I'm going to be. I'm not the Messiah that you're expecting. He says, yes, I am the Messiah, but I've come to die. It's a very, very powerful moment it's outrageous and his disciples simply can't believe it no way says Peter that's not going to happen to you Jesus suffering isn't what Peter expects in a Messiah death isn't what he and the disciples want to hear about we know all about the Messiah they say he, he won't suffer or die. The guys who have chosen to follow the Messiah are going to be led into, into victory, into conquest, into 
to celebration. And this isn't what we've been waiting all these centuries for. I'm sure you were struck by Jesus' response to Peter. It seems uncharacteristically harsh. He turns to Peter and he says, Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Friends, I don't think that Jesus is calling Peter Satan. I don't think Peter is any more evil and deserving of that title than than any of the other 12 or any other person. Jesus is simply using the strongest possible language here because he's standing his ground against a satanic attack at this moment. He hears the voice of Satan in the words of Peter. You see, whenever we speak of the temptation of Jesus, we tend to think of that time just before he began his public ministry, 40 days in the desert, uh, where Satan tried to distract him and derail his ministry before it even started. But the truth is that Satan tempted Jesus repeatedly throughout his ministry. Right at the very end, in the Garden of Gethsemane, just before he went to the cross, there's a sense that, that Jesus is being tested He's being tested. Will he continue? Will he do the thing that he has set out to do? Yes, that that opening temptation is a very valid one, that one in the desert. But this is another temptation of Jesus Christ. At just the moment where he's finally recognized as the Messiah. At just the moment where everybody wants to fall in behind him and say, Yes, you're the boy. We're going to follow you. We pledge you our allegiance. We're going to have hundreds of thousands of people standing behind you within 24 hours. At just that moment, when just that temptation comes encroaching in on him, Jesus says, stop. At just that moment when he's tempted to step off the road that leads to to seeming failure and defeat on a cross at Calvary, when he's offered a a much more attractive, a, a much more comfortable and easier way out, he says, stop. Get behind me, Satan. No. I won't do it. The disciples got their first question right that day, but they got the second one badly wrong. Why had Jesus come? They thought he'd come to rescue them from political oppression. They thought of how Moses had taken the people out of Egypt, how how David had defeated the Philistines. They thought Jesus was going to be one of these guys. He was going to rescue them from the occupying Roman forces. But folks, this understanding of Jesus simply doesn't do justice to his mission into the world. Jesus' rescue plans much, much bigger than that. He hasn't come just to rescue Israel from political oppression. He's come to rescue them from sin and from death. His rescue isn't just for one nation. It's for the whole world. 
To limit Jesus to a guy who was going to rescue the, the Jews in the first century AD from Roman oppression is just to play down Jesus far, far too much. Friends, the disciples weren't able to understand Jesus and his mission into the world because they they underestimated the seriousness of human sin. They thought that if ever somebody came and kicked out the Romans that everything would be all right. They failed to see that they failed to see the lengths that a holy and a loving God would go to to bring sinful men and women into his kingdom. They failed to see the need of the cross. Can I come clean with you for a moment and tell you that most of the time in my life I feel a lot like the disciples? I underestimate the seriousness of human sin. I think it's probably got something to do with living in an overly permissive culture like the one that we live in just now. We live in a culture that prides itself in, in ditching Victorian morality, any sort of imposed views of right and wrong. We live in a culture where there is no longer any right and wrong. Nobody's allowed to pass comment in anybody's life, much less any sort of a judgment. There is no God. There is no right. There is no wrong. There is no black and there is no white. The air that we breathe is moral relativism. Anything goes. Nothing feels like sin. In this culture, it's hard to take sin seriously. And I know I struggle to do that. Friends, I'm, I'm inclined to underestimate the importance of human sin. But then I, then I read the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I discover that there was something so serious wrong with this world that Jesus Christ came, suffered, and died to make it right. I'm learning, rather than to think of things backwards and to think sin doesn't seem like a big deal to me, therefore, therefore you know, that stuff about Jesus dying on the cross is no big deal, I'm starting to, to turn the whole thing around I'm starting with the concrete reality of a Christ crucified in my place and to recognize there the seriousness of my sin. If I live in a culture that tells me sin's no big deal, I look at the Bible, God's revelation to us, and I see that sin is a big deal. My sin is a big deal. Christ died to save me from it. Who is Jesus? He's the Christ, God's chosen King. Why did He come? To rescue us from the devastating consequences of our sin. And that brings us thirdly and more briefly to the last of our questions. What does all this mean for me? Jesus spells out the response that He requires in in the verses, uh, the closing verses of our passage. Look at verse 24. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. 
Just a few weeks ago, Adam Jones, when he was talking about the work of Ithes, was talking about this passage. And he, he said a thing that, that struck me. He talked about the, the image that we have in our head of what Jesus means when he says, take up your cross. We have reduced it to something like putting up with a sore back or putting up with a, a grumpy neighbor across the fence. Oh yes, I, I have my, my burden or my cross to bear. That's not what Jesus is talking about. To take up our cross means to die a certain kind of death. It means we die to ourselves. It, we, it means that we, we look at our lives as we live them now without Jesus Christ and we say, that's it. That life is over. I die to that life. It means responding to the call of Jesus to an entirely new and a different way of life. He says, deny yourself, take up his cross and follow me. The Apostle Paul puts it wonderfully. He says, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life that I I used to live, it's gone. It's over. That life that I lived entirely for myself without reference to Jesus, it's, it's a closed book. I now live the new life. That Christ has borne in me and has called me to. All of my ambitions have changed and are changing. All the things that, that I once held dear, all the things that were important to me, are, are under review. A new thing is happening in me. Friends, some of us have been familiar with Jesus and heard sermons about him for, for seven or eight decades. A small handful of us have have only been here in church for a few months now as we've graduated out of Bible class where where we were taught faithfully about Jesus. There's some people here this morning who are, to be honest, are quite new to this whole church experience and and you're only beginning to learn who Jesus Christ is and, and what difference he might make. Folks, none of that matters doesn't matter whether you have 90 years experience of Jesus or half an hour beginning uh, here this morning. What matters is what we do with what we've seen here in God's word today. We can't ignore Jesus. If, If any of this is true, we quite simply can't ignore him. If he's God's chosen king, the Messiah... If he's the one who came into this world to rescue people from sin and all that separates them from God. If if that's true, then we cannot continue to live as if it doesn't matter. We need to recognize our need of Jesus and accept him. Accept his forgiveness and accept him for all that he is. Folks, it's been brilliant. The highlight of the last few years of ministry for me to see a number of people in our congregation over the last few weeks and months responding to Jesus Christ. God has opened their hearts and their minds and they've begun to see some of the stuff that we're talking about here this morning. 
People are turning from a life without Christ and beginning to live that life that Jesus calls us to. Maybe you're getting to that point yourself. If you are, I'd encourage you to find somebody you can talk to. Find a friend who knows Jesus who could talk to you about this stuff. I'd be delighted if it was me. Uh, Nothing would give me greater pleasure. I'll drop anything in my diary. I'll scrub out anything else if I can help you to think more about Jesus Christ and the role that he might have in your life. Jesus matters more than anything else in the world. He's God's chosen king. He's the savior of the world. And he's calling me and you to leave behind an empty and a destructive way of life. He's calling us to enter into the fullness of life in the kingdom of God as sons and daughters of God. He wants you to be his follower and his friend. Let us pray.